You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about recruiting and retention in the post-pandemic world. This is a recording in February, so stay tuned for a really good discussion. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the ever-growing video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Head over to psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Let me introduce first myself a little bit. I'm Alexander Schacht. I'm leading a department within Veramed that is focused on providing services all around launch and commercialization. So everything that you need from a stat side on launch and commercialization, whether it be network meta-analysis, additional publications, but also strategic consultancy. So things like, what kind of evidence will I need? What is the best way to uh, position our product? How can we best engage with decision makers and key opinion leaders? All of these things uh, you can come to me for. The other point is I'm also running a, a quite successful podcast that is going on for over 200 episodes, so about four years now. And um, we have well... Uh, beyond 100,000 downloads. So that's, that's quite a nice success. And you can uh, check out the podcast on The Effective Statistician just by searching for any on any platform uh, for The Effective Statistician. And finally, through that, I also provide a training in terms of leadership. That's one of my the things that I really love, helping others to improve in terms of their influencing skills not so much about administrative leadership, but about how you can lead a cross-functional team, for example, and how you can influence others. And um, that actually helped me quite a lot with the content today. So we'll come back to that in a minute. And with that, I hand over to Emma, to, uh, who is doing the webinar today, together with me, to let her introduce herself. Hi everyone. So um, I'm Emma Adams and I work for Michael Page Life Sciences. Um, I've got eight years of life sciences recruitment experience that is very heavily focused on the biometrics and data side. Um, so I had a conversation with Alexander and both of us felt this topic was really relevant. Lots has changed, particularly within recruitment, particularly post-pandemic. So we wanted to get together, have a look at the data. I know you guys like data. So um, we'll be able to present these results to you today. Yeah. And we'll make it a little bit in an informal way. So Emma and myself will chat about these different things while we present. And if you have any questions, then, you know, just write into the chat and uh, we can directly respond to it. Okay, for my presentation, presentation, I actually don't have any slides today because I want to just give you a couple of ideas of 
how to actually be successful in this post-pandemic world or during the pandemic that is still ongoing. And why am I actually a good person to talk about this? Well, because in a sense, for me, not so much has changed during the pandemic. Because when I got my first direct reports, they were located in Paris, Madrid, Vienna, and in the office in Germany where I was also sitting. So in four different countries, well, of course, you can't kind of travel around Europe every, every week. So I was virtually working with them all the time. So what does it mean to actually, you know, have such a virtual team and, and lead it successfully? Well, there's, three, there's actually only one important factor that is important, and that is trust. You need to build trust with your team. Now, trust is a really, really interesting thing. It's a, it's a concept that a lot of people talk about, but lots of people don't really understand how do you build trust. And at the time, I really didn't know. And so I found out only later what are really the key components in it. Um, but naturally, I think a couple of things I actually did quite well. So uh, the first thing that comes to mind when you, when you want to build trust is that you care, that you take care of the other people and that the other people see that you care about them. And that was for me quite, quite natural because I'm pretty people-oriented supervisor I always thought about what is best for the people. What do they need? And I always started with that. So in a, for example, in a discussion about setting performance objectives, I would start with, what are your goals? How do you want to develop this year? What do you want to become this year? And then start from there and talk about kind of what are the best projects to work on and things like that. And that helped to build a much better connection. For example, with, with one of my direct reports, who was at the time kind of uh, on a lower end in terms of the performance, I listened really, really much more in terms of what are his interests, what are his strengths, and then placed him accordingly. And with that, turned the motivation completely around. He flourished. He was much more excited. He said, well, you call it work. I call it fun, he was saying. And so that helped a lot with engagement. And then you have a situation where people really want to move forward. Yeah, because they are working on something that is interesting for them in a way that is interesting for them. And that makes so much of a difference. Yeah, you don't need to monitor a lot of things. You just see that things are progressing because they have fun and they know the direction. Now, a couple of years later, this person actually, instead of leaving the company, got promoted. So that's, an, that's a story in terms of how you can care for people and how that builds trust. The next building block in building trust is character. So that's the second C, so to say, first cares and character. Character is, you know, something that we always talk about. 
it's something that everybody, you know, thinks, oh, I have a character, I have a good character. But it's not so much about what you think of yourself, but what the other person sees in terms of you. What do they see in your character? And one of the things is you need to back them up. For example, there was one really, really tricky situation. One of my direct reports came to me and said, I think there's something wrong with the study. And it's, it's quite a political thing. And he said, oh, I, I, I'm really scared to talk about it. And uh, can you help me? And so I kind of had the much more tougher uh, discussions with senior management to, be, to speak about this mistake and to bring it up. And I backed him up in terms of what kind of help he needed, what kind of support he needed. And through that, I could help to build a trusting relationship with this person because I supported him. I, you know, had a strong back when, when he needed it. And that is the second aspect that you need to have in building trust. So care and character. Now, the third thing in building trust is competence, another C. Even if you care, even if you have a lot of character, but you actually don't know what you're speaking about, that doesn't build trust. Because people will very, very fast learn that, well, you care and you're a really good guy, but actually you don't know what you're talking about. And that is the third component that you need to have invest in. And of course, here again, it's not so much about what you think your competence is, but what the other side thinks about your competence. And that is a really interesting thing because it starts with what others talk about you, what others talk about your competence. So it starts very often with, well, maybe you work for so, uh, with someone firsthand and maybe they have a friend that has worked with you. And then what this friend talks about you, about your knowledge, will help to uh, set up this trust. But also, what is your track record? What are your, um, maybe what's even your title that can help you with, with this competency thing? But over time, you need to show that you understand what are the problems of the different person, that you understand at least well enough where they are and where they struggle so that you can have meaningful discussions with people. So that is the third C after care and character is competence. So you need to build these three Cs in order to build trust with your direct reports. Now, that's a situation that you actually have direct reports. So it's about the retention part more or at least the early onboarding part. But how about actually attracting people? Now, I think the days where you just put a kind of a job AdWords out there and you, you, know, you see the CVs that are all high quality are flooding in is probably past, especially in the uh, stats and programming area. So how do you get people to apply to you? Or at least... If a recruiter you work with calls him and says, I want to work, you know, I have a position you could work with Alexander. 
What would attract them? Well, the first thing is they know the person already. If they don't know you, well, you already have, in a sense, lost because then you're just another supervisor, just another statistician. And you doesn't differentiate. So first get to know. And you can do this by giving more presentations. I, of course, have my podcast, but by all kinds of different other means. For example, being more active on LinkedIn, building their network. The second thing is that you need to step over is that they like you. So know you and like you. So if they have seen you at a conference and you were not the nice guy, you were the guy that, oh, no, I don't want to, you know, talk to this person. Hmm. Red flags there. So make sure that you're likable. Yeah, that doesn't mean that you need to have be the, the funniest guy in the world, but at least someone that people can relate to. You know, be likable. And once you have the no, the like factor, then you can start with the trust factor. And that's, again, you can build it through care, competence, and character. And that you can do, you know, in the same way as when they are in the company, you can do that similar also when they're not yet in your company. So by providing content that is engaging, by providing help to them, by connecting to them in an authentic way. Yeah, so if you are LinkedIn and try to connect with people, don't just kind of randomly set connection requests, but see kind of, do they kind of fit to you? Is it something that you have in terms of common interest? And connect also with the, with the things that others are posting. Yeah? So, so comment and share and, and like things from other people. Most of the people on LinkedIn, unfortunately, are just kind of silent listeners. Uh, be part of the active community. That will help you to build these connections in a much more meaningful way. So in summary, build trust by showing that you care for the different people, that you have a character that the other person can rely on, that you're predictable, that you're reliable. And last, show that you're competent. Make sure that people understand your background and understand your knowledge. And if you work on these three things, you can build trust. And in terms of getting to know people, well, build on your know, like, and trust factor on these different things so that you can attract new people in this virtual world. And of course, it will always be about the virtual things. Once we go back to conferences, of course, attend these as well. But having a strong presence virtually is really important. With that, I hand over to Emma, who will actually give us some more data on all these different topics. So I'm really, really happy that we have her. Thank you for the introduction. I'll just share my screen now. Lovely. As Alexander mentioned, um, I'm basically going to have a look at the data that has been collated. So 
Um, I would like to discuss some of the things that our candidate survey has shown. Also recruitment challenges, how to make the hire first time, the rise in data analysis, what do candidates actually want, and then information sources for you to be able to have a look at as well. So in 2021, we were asked for a lot of insight on almost a daily basis. The way that work was being done totally changed. There was virtual trials and lots of all of a sudden having to adapt to onboarding junior staff, working from home, lots of changes. So we were really regularly asked, will hybrid working become the norm? Are candidates still willing to travel? What role will the office play going forward? And what skills are the most, um, most in demand post-pandemic? So we wanted to basically put something together to start actually having some answers for you guys. The way we did that, so um, we approached over 3,000 profiles um, who were then able to kind of fill in the survey for us. On top of that as well, we we added 500 business leaders to that to give their kind of client perspective too. So what we found, so obviously COVID has fundamentally changed things. That's a given, right? But for example, in the UK market in 2021, 11.4 million um, profiles were actually furloughed. That means that you've also got a new boost in candidates trying to upskill themselves, change industry, move around. 36% of the population works full-time from home. And um, you'll see, actually, as we go through this presentation, I was quite surprised to see, as a result of the pandemic, how many candidates are now asking to see if they could come into the office to help build culture. I was quite surprised by that, as somebody trying, who's tried to convince um, biometrics candidates into the office for most of my career. Also, as well, what we found is that um, workers wanted to be in roughly for about two and a half days a week. But employers actually wanted people to be in three days per week. So obviously, there's a bit of a disconnect there. And um, 51% said they were actually really comfortable commuting and working in the office, with only 2.5% saying they weren't. So it's showing, obviously, there's confidence in the vaccines that's been rolling out. And there is confidence to be able to kind of start getting back into the world again. What became really clear is that hybrid working is here to stay. And it, for the first time in my career, global pharmaceutical organizations are having to match kind of CRO consultancy flexibility. As Alexander's already said, um, a lot of the um, hires that are being made are in totally different countries. Only one of my um, successful placements in 2021 actually had the line manager and the candidate in the same country. Only one for that whole year. I can completely see that. I think having this combination in terms of working from home, but also seeing colleagues in the, in the office is a very, very nice setup because it brings together lots of, you know, the positives of both worlds. Exactly. And particularly for more junior profiles, it must be so daunting, particularly if you're a graduate and coming into the um, kind of working environment and, and working from home, onboarding, training. You haven't got somebody sat next to you that you can just say, how do I do this? Just the little simple thing. So it's good to see that people are kind of more open, I guess, to going into the office. It did highlight that there was... Um, quite unclear employer expectations. So 
I didn't put a question in there to ask whether candidates has actually asked their bosses what the expectation was, just to be really clear. But um, as you can see, there's quite a few discrepancies. So on the left hand side, you can see the number of days and then what workers wanted versus what their employers actually expected and then the difference between the two. So there's quite a lot of difference there. The only place where there isn't difference is where they were both decided um, and agreed upon working full-time from home. To be honest, um, if we really kind of looked at data from prior years, it could simply be that those 18% that we asked were always home-based workers. So if we have a look, 22% have not been told how many days they're expected to be in the office. Don't know whether they actually asked though. Um, 70% said that having the vaccine would make them feel more comfortable going into the office. Over 30% of employers would still like employees to work full time in the office. But that was actually really surprising to me. 19% of employees were actually happy to do that, which was even more surprising. Um, I have a look into levels a, a little bit further on. And workers wanting to work full time from home are actually in line with um, employers offering full flexibility. I think this is quite an interesting uh, statistic. If you can see that a third of all the employers want you know, them to be full-time in the office, and that is even in consideration when you know, 22% have not even communicated about this. So if you can think that you know, a good proportion of these also expect people to be in the office, that's quite a lot. Whereas... 80% of the people want to not work full-time in the office. So I think for every employer, every supervisor that expects people to be in the office all the time, that means that the, the candidate pool that they have is drastically different than you know, those that are much more open to hybrid working. Exactly. And this is the conversation that I have on a daily basis with clients. So it's good to have this data to actually back up what we're saying now. So next, moving into flexible working preferences that vary significantly across skill sets and levels. So on average, managers actually wanted to work from home three days a week, while their staff want to work from home two days per week. So as you can see, junior staff members are wanting to go into the office a little bit more. 18% of employees with one to three years of experience want to work from home five days per week, compared with 14% who have worked for 10 years. So there's quite a difference between um, junior hires and then more experienced hires there. Also, workers aren't actually relocating from city centres just yet. Um, I don't know about um, across Europe or the US, for example, but in the UK, there was so much concern around the housing market and everyone all of a sudden wanting to get out of central London or get out of the big cities and kind of move to the countryside. Actually, when we were asking profiles about it in the farmer industry, that just wasn't the case. A whopping 77% of the workers said they actually hadn't considered moving at all during the pandemic. Um, and 41% of workers are not willing to travel for more than one hour. So this is kind of a known Thing anyway. In biometrics specifically, usually what you tend to have is, is very minimal travel, but more of an as and when approach, maybe kind of once a month, once every two months. But with um, profiles wanting to come into the offices more, it's quite useful analysis to see actually realistically um, what they would be willing to do. 
There's a question from Erica in terms of the background of the supervisors that were asked. Can you give a little bit about what type of industry and what type of companies they were coming from? Sure. So the way that we've pulled this data is um, from our database. So what we've done is specifically targeted the pharmaceutical industry. So mm -hmm. only people within organizations relevant. So pharma companies, medical device companies, CROs, consultancies, biotechs, biopharmas. What we haven't done yet, which we might be able to do um, on request at the end of this, is to actually pull out the actual job titles of those decision makers. Because what we, um, the 3,000 or the 500 business leaders that we actually asked, for example, one of them could be within finance, one of them could be within IT, but within the relevant organizations. The reason we did that is mainly because they tend to have blanket rules, particularly in, in large pharma that are quite rigid. So um, we wanted to, I guess, expose that and, and how that affects things because as we all know on this call biometrics tends to operate fully outside of, of the usual kind of processes that are put in place whether it's recruitment or kind of flexible working so that's why we did it that way yeah very good and i guess in terms of samples and it includes pretty much every size of the companies and yes, things like that exactly it's really key for us to be able to capture the most flexible and the least flexible because there is such a significant discrepancy but we'll kind of come on to that a little bit later so what mm -hmm. also became really clear is the type of skills needed to thrive in the modern workplace really surprisingly softer skills um, are really in demand what we're seeing is line managers being significantly more flexible in terms of technical ability And as you said, Alexander, are more focused on making sure there's good core principles there that you can kind of develop and work on. Um, so in the survey, the most um, sought out soft skill was actually communication. 60% of leaders said soft skills have been more important than traditional hard skills. Obviously, this is a pinch of salt when it comes to biometrics. You need technical ability, right? But <laughs> it's just in terms of priorities. So seven in 10 decision makers said remote working has changed the skill sets required for employees. 56% of leaders say the pandemic has highlighted a skill shortage in their team. That was absolutely massive. Um, I was really surprised at that. 73% of companies have been offering training to develop new skills. So really investing in the current staff that they have. Yeah, I think communication is a really, really important thing. It's as you're working in your home office, you need to be much more conscious and intentional about your communication. You can't just rely on the water cooler discussions. Um, you need to proactively reach out to people and also choose the right communication channel. I know that lots of introverts really just kind of rather send an email then basically set up a short meeting with someone. I can only encourage people to have these short meetings. And if they are only kind of a five minutes video call, um, have them. That makes such, such a difference. Yeah, If people can see your face, that is much better than you know, just writing an email. And you can directly see how the other person reacts to it. Yeah, Especially if you know, 
this as could be something easily misunderstood or controversial. You see that the other person finally looks like this. And, you know, oh, maybe I need to readjust my message here a little bit. And you don't see that in an email. So um, be conscious about how you communicate and, and train in terms of that is, is really important. Agreed. And actually, we did a bit of a focus on what other softer skills were um, now highly sought out. And um, what other things do you think came up? So there was three others that were quite key leaders. Any ideas? I'd say something about negotiation, conflict resolution, things like that, I would say. Yes, yes, exactly. So the second highest was adaptability. Third highest was resilience. And the fourth highest was collaboration. So you're right there. Yep. Um, So looking at the next slide. So has the pandemic affected the recruitment market? I think that is a giant yes. So... I wanted to have a look at post-pandemic challenges. So um, I looked at it from two perspectives, what I'm constantly coming up against with candidates and what I'm coming up against with clients, okay? So candidates are basically looking at their current employers and wondering if they can offer exactly what they want. It's no, you can't really hide from the fact that people's priorities have changed in the pandemic. A lot, all of a sudden, profiles are have been worked full time from home, it's shown that it works and they're asked to be going back in the office sometimes full time. So there's a lot of movement off the back of that. Clients, obviously, the challenge there is that they've got really rigid infrastructures leading to losing top talent to more flexible organisations. So there's also as well a fear of lack of stability if they want to make the move. So it's harder to, it's all about kind of moving for the right job. Is it worth that risk? Is it a stable environment? I've been here for a while. Is now the time during a pandemic? So lots of questions that we are coming up against, which ultimately, oh, go on. That is really interesting. You know, these first three points are exactly related to trust. So if you as a supervisor Ask your direct report to come into the office each and every day. But the direct report doesn't actually need it. That shows that you don't trust that person. And that person will perceive it that way. That you want to control him. That you need to kind of manage him very, very closely. So... Communication is really, really key. And you communicate not only by your words, but also by your actions. Even much louder than by your words. So there's this kind of sentence, I can't hear your words because your actions speak so loud. And this is really true here. If your organization forces people into something that they don't want, then exactly this happens. The current employer cannot offer, longer offer what I want. Exactly that. And um, what we are finding is that um, candidates are, after a period of of reflection, I guess, we couldn't really do much, could we? So candidates are really prioritising different things, and that will um, be shown in kind of a, a few slides' time. But that kind of fear... And that want to kind of um, keep the flexibility that they've gained is obviously a problem and and a significant reason as to why candidates are open to moving. 
Um, concerns with them boarding at home um, is an interesting one, mainly from um, more junior profiles of up to kind of maximum, say, five to six years of experience, just because they're worried about um, being able to pick things up quickly, be embedded in culture. A lot of things that obviously they haven't really necessarily been able to have access to during the pandemic. The way that transfers on the client side is, are they actually able to adapt to training and boarding home-based workers? Do they have the trainers? Do they have online training? You'd be so surprised how many organizations don't. It's actually mind-blowing. And I think that having online training and having online training that works are also two very different things. So it's really key to make sure that you are engaging profiles in the right way to make sure that it is successful. There's also a lot of discrepancies in packages offered by competitors. Candidates are so confused. What should they be earning right now? And what I am finding is that I've worked with clients for some time and there's very clear benchmarking um, processes that are in place to make sure things are fair, to make sure candidates are um, being paid what they should be paid. Because candidates are going externally and, and receiving offers from competitors that are incredibly competitive just because they need the talent, it's kind of leading to a lot of counters offers internally that's really upsetting internal benchmarking. So everything's really skewed currently. I think that it's also coming from the fact that the, you know, the market is not so homogeneous before. Like, let's say you have your office in central London and you want, you know, regularly people to be there. Then, of course, all the people will live kind of in or around central London and will have a similar kind of cost structure personally and, you know, very similar expectations in terms of salary. But now you're, you know, recruiting people that are remote and they maybe live somewhere in the countryside in Wales for a fraction of the cost. And now they can say, oh, that's a completely different game. And these are competing against each other, but also the other around. Now you have talent that might not need to come from the city of uh, London, or you, know, you have want to tap into this talent, you know, because before and you had everybody in the rural side of Wales and now you want to tap into the global market and you realize, oh, salaries in other cities are actually much higher. So this, that disrupts your complete kind of benchmarking system. Yes, exactly. And um, I never thought I'd say it, but actually leading to clients overpaying, which is um, <laughs> something I never thought I'd say as a recruiter. But You'd be surprised. We've actually had candidates in process with us who are gaining 15,000, 20,000 increase on their basic. And then all of a sudden, their current business is saying, we can match that. That gives off a very confusing, very confusing um, perception of somebody's worth in a business. So there's lots of confusion happening right now. There's lots of skew in that. Um, there's also, as well, skills gaps. There's a lot more higher expectation and more pressure going into organizations at a higher level and a higher value. But the skills gap part is really crucial. Usually, if, if you're short-staffed, as is most clients that I worked with, everybody will always look at a particular profile that I've got. 
it means that they don't necessarily have the they are able, but they just simply don't have the time to be able to explore new things and learn new parts of the market, whether it's a new programming language, whether it's um, taking the opportunity to finally get that lead experience. It's really hard to find the time. It's not because it's not offered. It's because of timing. And it means that on the client side, that there's such a need for candidates to come in and hit the ground running joining ready to go that instead of having to invest in upskilling that put it's putting more pressure on leaders and managers to have time to upskill new staff members that they just don't, don't simply have so it's a bit of a vicious circle at the moment yep and i think that will continue to be that case because there's overall there's Forever. a trend for more and more complexity more demand in the industry There's a new competition from, you know, tech companies and things like that that look for statistics talents. So as a, as a candidate, you need to be a self-starter and you need to, you know, show that you can work independently from day one. For sure. And um, I think quite a key thing that is coming through, and I'll talk about it, but Candidates are wanting their ideal role, not just any role. And I think that um, where that's translating on the client side into a challenge is that I'm always given a job description. And to be honest, I know it's probably not the best thing to hear, but most of them are identical. What a programmer does, a statistician does. <laughs> and a lot of them are very similar. And it's just a list of everything that might come up as a, a statistician or as a programmer. And um, the way that I have basically um, started to frame things with clients is that actually listening to what a candidate's ideal role is and then creating an opportunity around that will give the candidate a good impression. It'll give them a lot of trust and they'll feel incredibly valued and then they'll stay long term. It's kind of um, turning it around a little bit. Obviously, there are going to be key therapy skills that they need there might be the fact that they need leadership some things are non-negotiable but job descriptions have kind of become redundant it's the story it's the information it's the vision that's what is needed even simple things like job adverts if you're always recruiting for the same thing a candidate will look at it and say oh that job's been up for three months and it's just been constantly refreshed They don't know that there's probably 10 different jobs. To them, it looks like the same job that hasn't been able to fill. And it's starting to spark concerns. So I think that um, moving away from job descriptions and working more closely in what does a candidate want and then creating a hybrid role around that, that's really worked in 2021 for my You need to be much more focused. Yeah, just a generic uh, job description kind of go for everybody doesn't work because if you go for everybody you go for nobody <laughs> that's that's a problem <laughs> exactly that and um, so how to get it right first time so this is what has worked for my team okay so a really clear message to the market is crucial i'm actually going to talk about probability with statisticians i'm feeling confident today but <laughs> it's not necessarily using more recruiters doesn't necessarily lead to a higher prob probability of you guys filling your roles The reason I say that is because if there is a confusion with a message to the market, if it's not incredibly clear around everything on top of the job description that we just discussed, the vision, the story, the details, the project information, all of that lovely detail, if that gets lost in translation, it's more of a problem. 
than it is a solution. So sometimes it doesn't actually help that more people are hearing about your jobs. Sometimes you just need the right few amount of people to hear about the job. Also clear messaging throughout the recruitment process. It's surprising actually how many discrepancies there are from the beginning of the kind of engaging with the candidate in the initial conversations to actually the offer. You want to make sure whoever's involved in that recruitment process, they're all saying the same thing. Also, as I mentioned, you want to create new job descriptions online instead of recycling old ones. It's really easy to be quite quickly tagged with, oh, that job hasn't yet been filled. Why? What's the reason for it? What's the problem there? So you want to avoid that all very simple things, but something that maybe aren't necessarily thought about as much as they should be. Also really clear progression plans um, and career path options. It's all about that long-term vision. And I guess that links to trust as, as Alexander's been talking about quite a lot throughout this process. Another thing as well is really make sure that you are being competitive. I've written do your research. I mean, very broad, but I have seen a significant rise in clients asking us to do work that's our own version of kind of data analysis for recruitment, salary benchmarking, benefits package benchmarking, what do candidates really want, which is something that I'll get onto. But 40% of my team's client engagement, more than 40% actually, of my team's client engagement for 2021 was simply information, updating, analysis, nothing to do with candidates whatsoever. That's a huge chunk of our business. And it's just all about making sure that you are being really competitive and you're you're finding the right solutions to your hiring needs. It's not necessarily always contingent recruitment and adapting to that quickly is really key. Also considering your timeline, a lot of the time it isn't necessarily clear if there is an urgent need. And if there isn't an urgent need and you can wait for the ideal candidate, then that's fine. But if there is an urgent need, being really clear around actually, OK, um, it's not the most glamorous way to go to market. But what is the minimum requirements? Where can you be flexible? And just being really honest with yourself and your recruiter about that right from day one. This is the ideal. This is what we can work with. This is how we can upskill. It's also key to have a really fluid approach to the job description, something we've been talking about, making sure that you're able to really listen to what's available and what they want to make it achievable. And really simple one, under offering is a bit of a problem. In 2021, the counter offers, the competitor offers, candidates are in positions where they've got two or three offers on the table at one time. And it sounds really simple, but to candidates, it's not always about who's the highest bidder. It's not all always about here's the extra 5,000, here's the extra 10,000. Very rarely it actually is about that. But if, if you under offer as opposed to giving them what they wanted, it doesn't give a good impression in terms of them feeling valued and listened to. And also as well, when that, they get that kind of disappointment, it's quite a small industry. So it's quite something that can be really easily avoided. The last thing is speed. The entire recruitment process should not take more than three weeks on the permanent side. And on the temporary or contract side, it shouldn't take more than five days. What I'm finding with contingent recruitment, so for my team in 2021, on the contingent side, I think about 60% of the jobs that we had were live for more than a month that were contingent, which means multiple agencies. 
that's a huge amount. In terms of a complete recruitment process, three weeks, that means from the first engagement up to the contract sent out. Accepted offer, yes. Obviously, HR background um, processes and contract, but from the first engagement with the profile to then that offer being released. It's quite surprising figures, isn't it? Because the problem is really uh, smaller organisations with flexibility. Some of them can do it in a week with one interview process. And this, unfortunately, is is um, what is really skewing the market right now, because that's what larger organisations are up against. Mm-hmm. Yep. Simple things, pre-book interview slots to avoid delays, but tell your recruiters at the beginning if the recruiter can tell you if the candidates are available for your interview slots whilst they send the CV, significantly shortens the amount of time. Also pre-approve your offer before you get to the final stage. The gap between final interview and offer is such a key point where also other companies are saying, oh, he's at final stage, let's not miss out, let's jump in. Also fewer interview stages and just quicker responses from CV to first interview to show engagement. All really simple things. Yeah, completely agree with that. Basically, it speaks to making it a priority, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Um, It's all about embedding that value and trust that that you've discussed throughout your section. It's so key to make sure that the candidates know that this is a serious hire been taken seriously, and it really sets the tone long term. And the faster these processes go then the longer the candidates tend to stay because it, it really sets the tone and then it's ongoing. Yeah, I've heard about managers that are so busy that they delegated the, uh, the interviews with the candidates. Yes. Whereas I was thinking kind of, oh, no, do you, <laughs> do you really think you'll win, and win a candidate if you're not even, you know, open to interview them? <laughs> yes, exactly. And a lot of the time, there's some really amazing organizations that we work with. What their vision is, their story, everything is amazing. And they do most of the process so well. They do probably 90% of the process really well. But that final 10% with just simple things, that speed process, that getting through the interviews, making sure that there's not more than two interviews, that little part is where they trip up. And unfortunately, they then miss out on talent. So what I wanted to actually then focus on is the rise in data analysis, but within recruitment. So a lot of work that we did last year was things like market mapping, salary benchmarking, benefit package benchmarking, global talent maps, um, specific advertising campaigns. Um, whether it's via an agent, whether it's your internal talent acquisition teams, whether it's yourself doing it really taking the time to reflect on what is actually happening and how you are going to appropriately successfully hire is is really key. The part in the middle between this is what I need and what can actually be given, there's such a massive gap there at the moment that taking that time to educate yourself on actually, okay, well, how can I make this achievable? What's actually possible? So many clients came to us last year panicking about their 2022 hiring plans and how they can make it work and stuff um, and investing in this at the beginning to make sure that actually you've got an achievable hiring plan before you've even set it out is crucial. Most of the work recruiters do is damage control. Unfortunately, it's never um, about getting it right first time and damage control 
is where it's a problem. So try and try and get on the front foot and make sure you do it right first time. Yeah. By the way, there was a question about, is this three weeks also applicable to find statisticians or data scientists? I would say absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, so the way that, um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how um, current agencies work, but the way that I work is whenever I have a particular profile, um, I will talk to them about options that are available in the market. I'll listen to what their ideal is and then match them to the profiles that I'm aware about. Sometimes I don't even have, if they're really interested in particular companies that I don't have jobs for, I'll still ask the question to line managers that I've worked with before to say, look, I know that you haven't told me you're looking right now, but this person's interested and I think they'd be suited to your organization. So I'm always kind of resilient to kind of say from the recruiter side, I don't want to take away the fact that it's really hard for us to find profiles and we also need to do our bit in order for you to be able to do your bit. But when we do come across those profiles, we really need to make sure that the response is fast to secure them because unfortunately the volume just isn't there. So it's so risky that when you do find one, <laughs> you need to go for it. So um, I do understand there's a balance. And I think that um, the honesty with your agency there is really crucial because if you're in a position where you just got, aren't getting those profiles and they're not telling you why, then obviously that's the problem. Yeah, but the other point is really kind of, you need to have all your kind of systems, processes, capacities set up so that you can act fast. For sure. So the big one, what do candidates want? So um, I did a bit of analysis on candidates that um, myself and my team had spoken to within biometrics. So this is just biometrics focused. These are all the key things that came up in terms of what they would actually move for. Okay. So Alexander, I'd like to see if you could actually successfully position maybe the top five that came up. What do you think? So I think when I talk to people, more interesting project work comes up very often. These kind of hybrid full-time working is kind of a standard stuff. And team culture is also really, really important, how, how people are valued. And I think then, you know, Of course, if people want to change, they want to get also the more money. But I wouldn't say this is the this is usually the, the make or break it. It's of course if you change, you look for this opportunity. But primarily, people want to have satisfaction at work. Okay, do you want to know what the top five were? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's quite surprising. I'll go backwards. So in number five. It was more interesting project work. So it made the top five. It made the top five. Number four was for a promotion. Okay. So um, a lot of the feedback that we got, there's a lot of discrepancy between what titles mean within each business. So, for example, principal in one business is quite different to what a um, principal is in another business. So a lot of the time, it's all about feeling that value and getting that title. So that came in number four. Yep. Number three, which was actually really surprising, over 75% of workers said that they would move for a limited, limited company contract position, which was mind-blowing. I was so surprised by that. 
Yeah, that is the kind of contract workers, isn't it? Yes, exactly. It's a very UK-centric thing there that, that's come out. But a lot of, it's weird because obviously with the changes with the UK contract law and IR35, yeah. there's been quite a, a big shift in how kind of contract or temporary workers are working. A lot of want for fully home-based part-time work and working with multiple companies as opposed to just the one organisation. But it's not what it used to be being a temporary worker, particularly not in the UK. And I was so surprised that obviously there's been a huge shift of people moving into permanent roles, but who would really quickly move into that solution if it was able to be possible. The other one then, number two, is full-time working. And the first one was actually an, an increase in basic salary. So quite interesting data there to see the difference. But um, I think one of the key things just to note about that is the reason why candidates don't necessarily go into the project or team culture piece of this is because I think for us, some of the key things we have to ask them is, is managing expectations around kind of salary, benefits, packages, etc. So it's something we talk about a lot more. But I just thought it was, it was quite eye-opening to see that. Yep, it is. Let's come now to the end which is really good. And that is your, your slide about kind of how people can get in contact with you. Yes, exactly. So um, Michael Page as a life sciences business um, is new. We've been around for um, two years now. We've grown quite significantly, but not a lot of people have necessarily know that, well, everybody knows Michael Page, but not very many people know about the Michael Page life sciences. So I wanted to just share some useful links that you look into. So there's a website, also the link to jobs that we've got. But a key thing is we actually do quite a lot of e-books um, on particular trends throughout the year. And we also as well um, have got a lot of content that's kind of advisory salary guides, for example. So if anybody would like access um, to any of the data that we have, just pop me a quick email. I'm more than happy to share it with you. Awesome. Thanks so much. I hope you really very much enjoyed all the discussions that we had today about how to do recruitment and retention in this post-pandemic world that we'll hope to get to in some place. <laughs> and that there's you know, a couple of really important factors to consider. Um, I think one of the key things that came out of Emma's presentation was that it's all about connecting to the individuals and, you know, making sure that people really understand what they go for and have a very, very clear story to tell uh, and not just a generic uh, job profile, which, as you said correctly, looks very, very similar across the industry, just with a different intro at the top. And so don't just work like this, because I'm pretty sure your job is not just a standard one. There's surely specific things that, that are more important than others. And just kind of having a laundry list of all the different things up to, oh, you will do sample size uh, calculations, make it more specific. And that will help you to uh, recruit the right people. Any final word from you, Emma? No, just thanks for listening. I, I always enjoy opportunities like this to actually look at what's happening. And I guess that 
even I was surprised by some of this data that we've got. And we're lucky to have access to this and an investment in this analysis. So if anybody has any additional questions or would like anything specific, we are able to assist you. Thanks so much. And with that, have a nice rest of the day, rest of the week, and see you soon again on the Effective Statistician. Thank you. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. Thank you.